Good afternoon, good evening. I'm Dove Tuzman, and you're on equal footing. Trigger warning. Tonight's show is adult material. It's not being done in a salacious way, and it's not in order to raise your hackles. It's to tackle a subject that I think deserves discussion. We touched on it uh, about a year ago in a discussion on air about open relationships. We're going to dive into it in more detail tonight, and it's the topic of long-term monogamy, polyamory, consensual non-monogamy, alternative relationship structures. The question on the table tonight, is long-term monogamy, by the numbers at least, a sham? We're not talking halacha. We're not talking religious law. We will touch on the religious Aspect, and I think you'll be surprised by how this topic actually has made its rounds in the religious community. We're approaching it from a social science perspective. What are people saying they're doing and what are they actually doing? How does our behavior in relationships, whether we're dating, engaged, married, divorced and married, outside of relationship settings, all single, consciously abstinious, Wherever we are on that relationship spectrum, should we have a structure that fits our behavior at any place we choose to be on the spectrum? Or do we need to fit into what some people call the relationship escalator, the traditional relationship escalator? You know, you're a child, you're an adolescent, then you're single, then you're dating a little bit, then you're married, or maybe you're dating a lot, then you maybe you're divorced, you're not. And what's the definition of a successful relationship? In the traditional sociocultural sense, it's, you know, you, you are dead, you, you die married, right? Until death do us part. That's a successful relationship. Longevity, that's how we define it. But then the average marriage in the United States is less than seven years. The numbers are lower throughout the rest of the developed world. Something's wrong. We've talked about this before. We've got two guests to address this, again, from a scientific perspective, a psychology perspective, a sex and relationship therapist, therapeutic perspective. Thank you to our guests, Eric Schneider. Eric is an an experiential, dynamically oriented psychotherapist specializing in sexuality, sexual dysfunction, sexual sexual self-expression and relationship issues, and including issues that impair romantic and intimate relationships. Eric received his master's in mental health counseling from the University of Pennsylvania. He's currently a Ph.D. candidate in human sexuality at the California Institute of Integral Studies. He's appeared on numerous media outlets, including Sirius Radio nationally numerous times. Eric has also been a, a guest in various rooms on the Clubhouse app, and most recently on the Erotic Philosopher podcast, which is a cool podcast. He's also been featured on Goop. Eric, welcome to Equal Footing. Thanks for joining. I think hopefully we've got Eric on the line. I'm going to introduce our other guest, Rachel Klitschewski. Yes, I'm here. There you go. (laughs) Hi, Eric. Rachel Klitschewski joined us a few weeks ago on a popular and piquant program on the evolutionary and religious importance of the female orgasm. We're going to circle back to that topic later on, I think, this year from a different angle. And and Rachel is back by popular demand. Rachel Klitschewski is a sex and relationship therapist and educator who specializes 
in sexual dysfunction as well, and alternative relationships, which is on the table here tonight, gender and sexual orientation issues, etc. She has received her master's in social work at NYU and her master's in human sexuality at Widener University. Rachel's also been featured, sometimes with Eric, on Sirius National Radio and several different podcasts. Apropos of tonight's program, she lectures at NYU on polyamory, polyamory, we'll get to the meaning of all the buzzwords here, and intentional relationships. She lectures at NYU every semester on these topics, and she's been featured in publications like the Huffington Post, Yahoo Life, and Stylecaster. Rachel, welcome back to Equal Footing. I'm happy to be back. I bet you, I bet you a lot of our listeners... Don't know all the taxonomy these days of relationships. What is taxonomy? The way we categorize relationships, because even doing a lot of pregame research on this show, not having a lot of lived experience, frankly, in polyamory, but having some and being thinking I was kind of woke and aware of the different relationship structures. And again, our religious listeners, just remind you, I, I do consider myself also religious, not as religious as W, but I don't think there's anything wrong about being an observant religious person and looking around us, looking at the different things that are going on in society, uh, learning learning about it. That's what we're trying to do in this program is to learn about things without necessarily, we don't always have to agree, but we can respect and listen. So again, yeah, okay, I'm religious-ish, but I feel like I'm fairly plugged in. And Rachel and Eric, I got a little turned around on the terms. So there's some that I think most of our listeners would know. Like, for example, you're single and not dating anyone. You're just, you know, you're celibate by, by choice or not. You're uh, dating different people with no commitment to anybody yet. You are not married but dating someone in a monogamous situation, meaning you are agreeing together that you don't have any sexual or emotional intimacy, I guess, I don't know, maybe that's not the same. I mean, it's definitely not the same. Maybe it's not the same arrangement, but usually it's defined as, you know, both sexual and emotional intimacy in a monogamous relationship just between the partners. And then gets a little bit more complicated. Now, of course, on the spectrum of that would be the same thing, but you're engaged in to, to enter into the institution of marriage. Now you're married. Again, we're on this relationship escalator. I know Rachel's going to take me off of it, but you're on this, you're now married. Now, once you're married, you can be, most of the time you're choosing to be monogamous, um, the traditional structure. And then I think across this whole spectrum that I just laid out, I think everyone knows that some people are doing those things but cheating. They're doing, they're, they're saying that they're doing it, they're not, they're not really acting, acting out the, uh, the framework, uh, or they're acting out outside of the framework. That I think probably every listener no, it's like they could say, okay, I understand that those are different points in the relationship spectrum. But then research for the show, I got into like, there's polyamory, there's multi-partner relationship, there's consensual non-monogamy, there's ethical non-monogamy, uh, there's multi, multi-partner emotional relationships, and there's swinging, there's so forth. So Rachel, help, help us just designate these other categories we want to talk about tonight. Yeah, um, you're asking me to, to, you know, create these constructs, um, you know, in a way that we create constructs around everything else. And I think that that's why it's so hard to research the subject, because in non-monogamy, we're kind of, you know, we're kind of in open waters with the subject, right? Like, we don't have scripts. 
on how it works. And so the taxonomy is a little messy. Um, you know, there is no such thing as, as a relationship escalator in non-monogamy. Uh, some people do try to follow a certain set of milestones that are known. Um, but in general, we kind of just like live within the relationships that we have and that we cultivate. Um, the things that we do know is that there are fidelitous, like polyfidelitist relationships. So that will be more than two people who what, what's a will fi- be. What does that mean? What is a fidelitous yeah. relationship, whether it's monogamous or not? Right. So fidelity means that you are agreeing that you are going to be only with the people that you've agreed to be with. Um, and this is typically sexually, um, right? That's generally how we've defined it. Uh, that's not always the case. Um, but in, in this way, it would mean that you're not seeking sexual relationships outside of the dynamic that exists. So if you're monogamous, you are being fidelitous, hopefully, with the person that you've made that commitment to. If somebody's cheating, they have broken fidelity, right? They're, they're no longer fidelitous. Uh, so you, so can, poly- you can, if you agree yeah. to be with various people, or people have permission to do that in a relationship, you can still be fidelitous, but being sexually or emotionally intimate in that type of structure with multiple people. Correct. So it could be a group of people who are choosing that they are not going to date other people and they're not going to engage um, romantically and sexually outside of this particular group and and stick within the commitments that they've made to each other, whatever the rules and the, you know, the culture of that family is going to be. Um, and that was actually one of the first conversations in modern polyamory that we've had. Um, it, in 1988, a book called The Polyfidelity Primer, it was almost like a guidebook um, that was like a, a call, like a mating call to meet other, not necessarily mating, obviously, but to meet other people who are living in these structures because the Internet was not really that developed at the time. Um, and so they had to find interesting ways to find one another. Yeah, and to, polyfidelity was one of the first conversations. And to to be fair, these are structures that have been around for thousands of years in different cultures. Uh, in fact, it's only really in the last two or three hundred years. It's hard sometimes for religious listeners to hear, uh, but in most places, it's only in the last few hundred years that there's been a the the type of uh, traditionally monogamous uh, marriage structure uh, without any stepping out by either party as the institutional, uh, it, I would say, is the social norm. The institutional norm before that, but is the social norm. So th- this isn't, this isn't right. just since the, uh, the advent of the internet. No, I mean, the, the Bible talks all about <laughs> um, poly, like polygamous marriages, right? Um, and we also have learned back in 1982, I, I don't remember the author, but he studied pol- polygyny, which would have multiple wives, um, in Judaism, and he actually found that in the non-European, like, rabbinical texts, polygyny was ha- existing up until 1960 among Jews. Um, so we're talking about mostly Mizrahi, Sephardic, um, you know, like Jewish spaces where they had multiple wives and that was a perfectly acceptable and halachic process. 
for them. Yeah, and we're not tonight. We're not having a halachic discussion, but yes. while we're on the yes. religious topic, and then I, I, I want to uh, I want to transition here, Eric, for you to help us with some of these numbers. Rachel, the, the, I mean, we've we've talked off air about even Torah references to mm-hmm. kind of the challenges to the Sanhedrin around, you know, social structure versus uh, socially evolved structures. Do, mm-hmm. I know we're not we're not having a theological discussion, but I do think it's worth tying in this to you know. Is it allowed? Do religious listeners right now need to like basically shut off the radio if we're talking about consensual non-monogamy, or is do you think there's there is some textual kind of allowance for the, at least the discussion? Well, I mean, this is obviously for them to to resonate with you know like their faith and their choices. Um, I'm like obviously not going to speak from a like a rabbinical perspective, but what I am going to say is that you know we have the the story of the ovens of Akanai, right, um, which I highly recommend. It's a fabulous story. Um, you know, results with the statement that lives in the book Dvarim or Deuteronomy, um, for those who understand the anglicized words, um, where they say, Ki ha-mitzvah hazot lo niflet hu mimcha lo hu. Meaning, this mitzvah is not above man. It is within man. It's not in the. It's not in the heavens. It's not divine, and it is up to us to determine our halacha. Now, the Sanhedrin had decided that that meant that the Sanhedrin decides decides the halacha, and that's fine. That's what's been accepted. But you need to do what resonates for you and what feels right for you. And ultimately, polyamory is about connectedness and bonding. Um. You know, and as far as picking and choosing the philosophy and the framework that you want in your religious and faithful expression, I feel like that's the least of the sins at the end of the day. But again, that's up to, right, that's up to the individual to determine. It's brave, brave of you to wade into those waters, Rachel. And clearly this, this show is, is partly to, to, to make the point that we need, we are responsible ultimately for our own our own halacha to some to to some extent at least the observance mm-hmm. of it right and and i think that we can all agree i hope all listeners will nod their heads a little when you say you know if you 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 need to be open at least with yourself about the ways that you're violating your principles and this is really about tying principles to behavior and so yeah we could say we're never going to discuss anything but traditional monogamous marriage but Guess what? Traditional monogamous marriage where no one is cheating is one of the least likely relationship structures in the United States. In fact, if you take, Eric, I wanted to turn to you some of these numbers. The pregame research for this show was challenging, but fascinating. If you take, you know, single, uh, non-dating, single monogamous, uh, monogamous, single, uh, and, and monogamous but cheating, uh, married and monogamous, married monogamous and cheating, um, and then, and then take dating and consensually non-monogamous and married and consensually non-monogamous and you take all those categories. The, uh, least likely category, statistically, arguably, when you adjust for social responsibility, uh, social desirability, uh, response bias is the marriage monogamous non-cheating. <laughs> statistically. So, uh, 
What's going on here, Eric? Are we basically as a society living a non-monogamous lifestyle and we just are not looking in the mirror? It's so funny that you say that because I was just working with a couple that presented as a monogamous couple. And and very quickly we found out they've only been paying lip service to monogamy. And and so when you bring up the issue of the numbers, it's it's kind of a mess right now. It's such it's so early in the polyamory research, and I defer to 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 Rachel on this because this is her expertise. But when we talk about anything outside of a non-monogamous relationship, um, it, everything's all over the place. And so you know we are we are still reeling from the the cultural the post World War II cultural scripts and ideas here in the West, right in in in, in America. We're still dealing with the, the echoes and the ramifications of those scripts that clearly didn't work, hence the, the 60s movement. Um, they didn't work for most of the people. They only worked for uh, basically heterosexual, uh, cisgendered white men. Um, but there is clearly a lot going on here that is now far more visible. As you pointed out earlier, you know, if we go back to antiquity, relationships were uh, were. Uh, most often sanctioned, but they weren't sanctioned necessarily based on gender or uh, based on, on numbers of partners. They were early on, if I remember this, they were more sanctioned based on uh, economic factors and statuses, mm-hmm. cultural statuses. Um, but now, I mean, uh, even trying to, I mean, uh, you know, when it comes to like census data, uh, it's very limited. We, we count cohabitating couples, uh, the census data counts, married couples, but no one talks about the length of those couples. No one talks about the, the, uh, uh, any diverse, uh, any, uh, relational diversities. It only talks about those two, but even that movement to cohabitation is only from like, uh, you know, in terms of its public knowledge, um, cohabitation, you know, was born out of the sixties, you know, living together, living in, right. What they call it, living in sin and right. and all of that. So it's, it it is kind of like we've been paying lip service to something that clearly doesn't work. I mean, uh, Turkle wrote this amazing book um, called "The Way It Never Was," which is about exactly what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, there was this mythology that all these social scripts or these relational scripts, you know, they would lead to fulfillment and satisfaction, and they didn't. We're going to take our first break. I really appreciate Eric Schneider and Rachel Klachewski walking us through the current relationship structures that are out there in an open and honest way that are happening. You may may like it, you may not, but they are out there. Alternative structures like polyamory, various forms of consensual non-monogamy. And there is a strong argument that if you're going to be with more than one partner, you ought to do that in an honest and open way that everyone agrees to. Before our first break, let us leave you with a couple of numbers. Well, first, the number to call in and participate. Call in and yell at me for having this subject on the air. Kind of again, we touched on open relationships, like I said, about a year ago. Call in 718-303-9090. That's 718-303-9090. Live on the air. Nothing off limits. You can say your name. You don't have to either. And uh, give us a question or comment. Or if you're shy about being on the air and you want to text in a question or comment, you can go to 917, send something in either by SMS or WhatsApp to 
4062. Again, that's to text in a question or comment on this topic of is long-term monogamy a sham? The question, I should say. 917-428-4062. couple other numbers, as promised. 2016, a survey of over 9,000 single U.S. adults, pardon me, U.S. and Canadian adults, showed that about one in five were currently in a consensually non-monogamous relationship. Probably under reporting bias there, too. So it's probably the same, probably a higher number. Some people say one in four. Some people say one in three now for folks that are 35 years or younger. Now, here's another number that will, I think, uh, cause you to, to rethink. A comprehensive three-year study by YouGov covered desirability of different relationship structures. Over almost 60% of Americans under 40 years old say their ideal relationship structure is a consensually non-monogamous structure. 56%. Now the number goes down as you get older. People get, you know, probably more set in previous ways and it goes a little bit up as you get younger. But that's a big number. So that's more than half of our country saying my ideal relationship structure would be one where it was consensual with me and my partner or me and my partners to be non-monogamous. We'll be right back. So I fall in love just a little, a little bit every day with someone new. I fall in love just a little, a little bit every day with someone new. Equal Footing is bought, brought to you in part by Manhattan Medical, and you've heard me talk about Manhattan Medical before. Uh, Manhattan Medical addresses, like we try to here on Equal Footing, an issue that doesn't get enough attention. There's too much uh, shame and stigma around it, but it's not something to be ashamed of. It's something to be addressed, and that is erectile dysfunction. It's something that can cause great emotional pain for the individual and for the couple, uh, uh, being unable to have enjoyable sex. There are options out there. Just talk to someone. It's not just about those expensive blue pills. I know many people cannot take them. There are side effects, and some people have comorbidities that don't allow for that. There is a new effective therapy for erectile dysfunction that Manhattan Medical uses called Gaines Wave. And Gaines Wave therapy has been around for quite a while in uh, Canada and Europe. It's just starting to, to take hold in the United States. It has excellent results, and it's non-invasive. It's surgery-free. It's painless. There are no side effects. And again, for the vast majority of patients, it has wonderful results. This is Manhattan Medical's Gaines Wave therapy for erectile dysfunction. Uh, it is not available only to folks in the New York area or in Manhattan. Anywhere in the United States, you can have a telehealth consult with Manhattan Medical about their ED gains wave therapy. Call now for a free consultation. That's right. If you mention you heard about Manhattan Medical on equal footing, you get a free consultation, and that's a $250 value. Call 888-ED-CURE-9. That's 888-ED-CURE-9. Uh, in numbers, 888-332-8739. Call Manhattan Medical about their Gaines Wave Therapy for erectile dysfunction. Mention you heard about it on equal footing and get a free consult from anywhere in the United States. 888-332-8739. Call now. I've been caught, but I'm keeping on. 
Hi, you're back on Equal Footing, and we're talking about long-term monogamy. Is it a sham? It's our archetypal structure in this country, but it is not a structure that the very many people are engaged in. Uh, most people are engaged in relationships that are presumptively, if they're in a relationship at all, in relationships that are presumptively monogamous, but where that's not what's actually happening in, in real life, uh, or um, an increasing number, as much as 10 or 15 percent of the country is that is engaged in a consensual non-monogamous relationship. Eric, we're talking about how, why the numbers are difficult. And I think one of the reasons is something that social scientists refer to as, and I just said it before the break, social desirability response bias. What is that about? Is that going to change in this area, you think? Actually, um, you know, people like Rachel um, are, are leading that, that change and that transformation that you're, you're referring to, but, but this particular bias that you're talking about is one of the ways that we <clears throat> tend to try to coordinate uh, uh, consensual social context. And so it, it's not just something that shows up in scientific research. It's something that actually people engage in in their relationships. So it's more socially desirable for me to, uh, for instance, for me to say that, you know, yes, I'm monogamous because I'm attracted to you and I want you to be my partner and you want monogamy, right? So I'm, I'm giving, I'm offering, even on, even in, in terms of a dyad, I'm offering, uh, I'm saying, uh, one thing, even though I may not feel that way in order to try to establish that, that consensual space. The problem is, of course, it's not actually consensual. So yes, there is that that bias in social science, uh, you know, and it, it's a tricky one um, uh, because language both both reveals and, and conceals simultaneously, and we choose to uh, we choose what we say uh, very often, especially in a social context. Um, what will actually put us in the best possible light and will help us achieve the results that we desire. Eric, to your point, uh, listeners just written a, a moment ago. This is a listener who has been in a consensual non-monogamous relationship for a long time in the religious community. And I'm sorry if that upsets folks, but I appreciate this listener being open and, and, and honest coming from that community. Maybe I should say, um, she says, uh, lots of times, uh, consensual non-monogamy is associated with being able to engage sexually with other people while polyamory is more about exploring, building intimate emotional connections with other people, and it isn't necessarily physically based. For me personally, polyamory is about having different emotional intellectual needs met, while maybe sexually as well. Is that a fair distinction? And if is polyamory about like, I mean, amory comes from the, the, it's, it's the root word is love. Is polyamory about loving or being sexual with other people, or does it have to be both? Help, help me out here, Eric. Well, I mean, you know, this this goes back to something you asked earlier. You know, when we talk about commitment, the question then in, in any relationship is what are you really committing to? And what are you really willing to commit to and, and get behind? Uh, polyamory, you know, as a term, uh, means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And I think that one of the things that happens is that we're still a culture, uh, despite of our, 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 our apparent liberation, uh, and a, apparent freedom still view sex in a very particular way as somehow um, uh, to to say that one's relationship is really to say that polyamory is about 
you know, emotions and, uh, primarily and, and sex secondarily, uh, the, you might find that, you know, if you ask a number of different people who, who participate in those kinds of relationships, it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Rachel, is it harder to be in a consensual non-monogamous relationship? Because I imagine there are more kind of rules and setups. Which type of relationship reports with couples? What does the science tell us? Who's, who's happier? Who's more satisfied? Which, which relationship structure is easier? The consensual non-monogamous structure or the traditional monogamous structure? Yeah, so that's an interesting question because, you know, I've heard, like I heard the word happier and then I heard the word easier and those two are not the same. And I think that that's a really important point. Often the things that are challenging for us tend to also be the things that make us more satisfied. Um, it's all about effort and all of the bones that make any relationship work, they'll work in monogamy and they'll work in non-monogamy. And so... You know, when it comes to ease, like, there are some practicalities and challenges in polyamory that won't exist in monogamy. For example, like, time is not a renewable resource, and, you know, you have to budget time. Um, you know, we also just don't have the social structures that allow us or the legal structures to really allow uh, polyamorous folks to to live in certain ways, and there's a lot of social stigma. So some of the things that make polyamory more challenging are practicalities that have nothing to do with the relationships themselves. And, you know, keeping a relationship alive requires effort. So you are putting effort in more places, um, which can be challenging for some people. Some people like the effort. Personally, I think the effort is very rewarding. Um, is there any social science, just sorry to put you on the spot, that shows yeah. whether people are, are more satisfied, happier yeah. in in consensual non-monogamous or, or monogamous? I don't know which one it is. I'm not, there's no yeah. loaded question. Yeah. So back in 2012, I believe, Loving More magazine uh, conducted research where they you know, spoke to the, you know, polyamorous, the global polyamorous community and asked them to give some reports. And what they have found was that polyamorous folks in general are not that much more satisfied or happy in their relationships or in general life um, than the general population, with the exception of bisexual folks and transgender folks, uh, because, I mean, obviously for bisexual folks because that means that they can actualize their bisexuality right. um, and transgender folks because it tends to be a more sex positive and welcoming space for mm -hmm. them. Um, some of the reasons that they described this was because people are still carrying a lot of uh, monogamous prescriptions with them into polyamory. So when they found that the people who were more questioning of the the standard truths about love and relationships, those people had a much greater relationship satisfaction score and a much greater general uh, life satisfaction score um, than the general population. One more question on the satisfaction side. So mm -hmm. I, I, there was a bunch of myth-busting for me in the research for the show. By the way, one of them having to do with sexually transmitted diseases. And in fact, folks that are mm -hmm. sexually, folks that are in consensually non-monogamous relationships have a substantially lower index 
of STDs, which I found fascinating because there's probably mm-hmm. there's better testing and often people are in relationships where they think it's monogamous, but someone else is actually cheating. And so there isn't as much of a, of a need sometimes for sexual hygiene and health or perceived need. And it's an actual need. But I don't want to go down that rabbit hole more. On the satisfaction side, where is there better sexual frequency and desire and yeah, let's start. Sexual frequency and desire is the index different based on consensual non-monogamy versus traditional monogamy? Um, that is a, an interesting and challenging question because in non-monogamy relationships live in different timelines, right? Like you could have a relationship with a person for three years and then have a relationship with a person for six months. Um, and so we have this concept called new relationship energy, which is like that big, exciting experience when you start a new relationship. And so that's going to increase the sexual desire and possibly the sexual frequency. Um, and, and that's also assuming that the person is a sexual person. There are a lot of asexual folks that are also non-monogamous. So that might tip the scales in different directions. Are they like and to your uh, point, asexual folks that are non-monogamous or ethically non-monogamous, kind of looking to somehow become more sexual and hoping that that does the trick? Pardon my ignorance. Um, no, uh, I think that it's a really good balance for them. Like if they are dating sexual people, it allows the sexual people to have sexual relationships oh, with right. people that they're cultivating relationships with. Um, there are asexual folks who are monogamous. We're just going to see more of them in polyamory because, again, the same as with trans folks, it is a more welcoming and sex-positive and understanding community. Mm-hmm. Um, and to your point about STDs and STIs, uh, whichever people feel comfortable using, um, another very important reason that the numbers are lower among non-monogamous folks is because there's no stigma around the discussion. And so there's a standard of, like, you know, starting a relationship with somebody before it gets sexual to say, hey, please get tested. These are my results. Um, In a monogamous setup, it's almost offensive to bring up STI testing and and condom usage. Yeah, stigmatization is so key to this whole discussion. I mean, Eric, we were just talking about uh, social desirability response bias, just fancy way of saying people when you – Pull them, don't want to necessarily tell you stuff that may make them sound good, maybe stigmatized. But stigmatization can also help affect the well-being of a person in a consensual non-monogamous relationship. And, you know, we've gone from the 19, you know, ni- late 1969, the San, San Francisco Sexual Information Project to Open Marriage, that book in 1992, the, you know, the, sorry, uh, uh, 1972, I think it was 1972 to The Ethical Slut published in the 90s. And so there's like, more cultural exceptions. Now that I, I, I found like eight current TV shows on ethical non-monogamy or consensual non-monogamy in researching for this subject. So it's out there. So does that mean, Eric, there's less stigmatization too? And so people may have an easier time being consensually non-monogamous today than 10 years ago or 20 years ago? Yeah, I, I wanted to go back to something Rachel said. She made that important distinction and, and this word keeps coming up easy and satisfaction. One of the things that make monogamous relationships that I don't want to lose sight of here uh, feel easier and sometimes code uh, statistically as as greater satisfaction or uh, better satisfaction is that what is encoded is that culturally 
a, monogam- a monogamous relationship is more, as you would say, is, is a socially sanctioned form of a relationship. So it's easier. There are institutions, uh, cultural and sociocultural institutions, that support people who are in marriages. In the, in the following the relationship escalators you were talking about, uh, marriage specifically is its own institution. But to your, your current question, um, uh, that's, that's important is that we, we've kind of entered what I call, uh, and what, what I, I wrote about in my own dissertation was a relation, re- relational tower of Babel. Um, as you mentioned all of those earlier statistics about people's preference and, and that they're, well, I think you said it was one in five, uh, and it's probably, as you said, underreported, again, because of that, that, that bias, um, that, that the, the community, the, the consensual non-monogamy community is making uh, as much as possible anything that could be held implicitly explicit. So therefore, right, uh, having conversations... Give it to us in simpler language. So what, what does that mean? What does which mean? It's something that's, that's implicit, they're making explicit. Yeah, in other words, <clears throat> as you were talking about it before, within a marriage, it would be offensive to ask your partner to get tested for something. Oh, I see. Um, like acknowledging a reality. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Right. And and so there is a there is a a tremendous amount of encouragement within the poly community to be explicit, to be affectively honest, to be transparent. Um, uh, these are often things that within a marriage structure or a more heteronormative structure, I'll say, um, that uh, you just follow the script, so to speak. But as I said earlier, the scripts don't work most of the time for most people. The other thing I'll say about monogamous relationships is there is an assumption that you're in a relationship with one person for a long period of time, as if the two people never change. And that's a problem within monogamous couples, because the truth of the matter is, if you are in a long-term relationship, and it is a monogamous relationship, you're both actually changing and evolving. And so the person you actually got together with 10 years later is probably not the same person. Right. We're going to have to take our our second break, but I do want to get to this question, really hit it uh, straight on about what is morally, ethically, you can even say religiously superior being in a presumptive monogamous relationship that's not real, that's not really what peop- what the couple is doing, they're just doing it secretly and deceptively, or being in a relationship where those things are open, like as you just said, Eric, making the implicit explicit. Call 718-303-9090. We'll take a caller or two after the break if you want to participate in this discussion. This question, answering the question, is long-term monogamy a sham? We'll be right back. Equal Footing with Dove Tuzman is sponsored by MDCS Dermatology, your experts in skincare. With two Manhattan locations and four offices in Long Island, including Plainview and Comac, the dermatologists and skincare surgeons at MDCS are proud to be affiliated with the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and New York Presbyterian Hospital. So schedule your next skin exam in one of MDCS's convenient New York area locations. 
To make an appointment, go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-DERM. That's 212-661-3376. You can even schedule a virtual video visit with MDCS's board-certified dermatologists from the comfort and safety of your own home. So go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-3376. And don't forget to mention Equal Footing for 15% off all cosmetic procedures. You're back on Equal Footing, and I'm Dove Tuzman, and we have our guests, Eric Schneider and Rachel Klachewski, both sex and relationship therapists, bravely talking about consensual non-monogamy. Let's get into the possibly the diciest area here, at least for people that have, it seems, are often looking at it from the outside, and I'm I'm going to quote one of these questions from a or from a listener directly, and then there are others that kind of say a similar thing, might draw from those as well. And it has to do with jealousy and the complexity of uh, consensual non-monogamous relationships. And a lot of folks are commenting, commenting basically that it sounds very difficult and it must be impossible. So this uh, one listener says that I think pretty succinctly. I'll put the question to you, Eric. How often do couples who agree to consensual non-monogamy end their relationships because of hurt feelings or because they realize it doesn't work for them and then they're not able to repair the trust in their relationship? I have no idea how to answer that question. Do you think it's more often than in presumptively monogamous relationships? When you say, when you say, um, I, I, again, I have no idea. There's no, there's no way of calculating um, any of that. You know, all I can say is that jealousy, envy, competition, uh, um, anger are, are normal affective realities. Uh, you know, emotional realities that that we all have to. We can't help our emotional experiences, even if we aspire to great things. I think. Um, I, I think any any. Um, uh, yeah, I, I really actually, as I'm sitting here thinking about it, there, there's no way I could answer that question. So I'll, I'll open up a little bit, and, and Rachel, maybe you can do so as well if you're willing, because uh, I, 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 I think, I believe you don't mind me saying that you, you also are in a consensual non-monogamous lifestyle. And I say also, because I think, um, Eric, you're also in an open relationship, as I understand it, whether those are, whether that's acted upon or not. I, in my one experience in a consensual non-monogamous relationship, there was actually no issue and no substantial issue around the being with another partner. Uh, the issue actually was at any kind of um, feeling of deceptiveness where it was outside of the agreed framework. So it wasn't even you know, having sexual relationships with another another person, uh, it, it was something that would be just, you know, communication or sexual innuendo or even just emotional connection with another partner that wasn't explicitly disclosed. So, Rachel, does it all boil down to kind of disclosure and rule setting? Yes and no. Um, when, when I work with couples that are opening up their marriages or their relationships, I explain to them that the rules that they're setting are, are that, like it's their transition from monogamy to non-monogamy. 
um, this lives in this belief that in a monogamous relationship, you possess each other, like you belong to one another. And we even have it in all of that, right? Like Valentine's Day is coming up. You can get a heart that says, I'm yours, you're mine. Like you're the one, you're the only one. And we romanticize this idea of being this like special individual to this other person. And we hold on to that belief as, as the thing that keeps us secure in the relationship. So when people are opening up their relationships and still have that framework, they're often going to put a lot of rules to try to maintain that sense of specialness, um, that uniqueness to this other person. What I also tell them is that these rules are going to have to soften up and they're going to have to be revisited on a regular basis because we cannot know what will be. And we have to approach them with a lot of gentleness and kindness because people will unintentionally break a rule because they thought it meant one thing over another. So does jealousy happen? Of course it does. It happens. It happens to the best of us. How we handle it is what matters. For the most part, the most seasoned polyamorous folks that I surround myself with, the people that I'm in relationships with, we don't think about jealousy all that much. It's just like not something we're concerned about. If we're having feelings about something, we'll discuss our feelings and not and not the almost accusation that comes out of jealousy. Mm-hmm. So jealousy is you weren't telling me the truth or you broke that rule. Um, whereas speaking from my feelings is, hey, I was really hurt by this. Right. And... And it, it didn't, it felt, it felt like it didn't live within what, what we agreed to. How long have and sometimes, you, yeah. how long have you yeah, go ahead. been in a consensually non-monogamous lifestyle? That is a very lovely journey. Um, I began exploring it when I was about 17 years old intellectually and then started practicing it right around 20 years old. Um, with breaks. <laughs> and you, you're, you're a parent as well. I am a parent. I was fascinated in the research around this show to find some actually pretty positive social science research on, uh, <laughs> multi parent, uh, child rearing in the polyamorous mm-hmm. community. And again, I'm sorry if I'm offending any listeners, but I'm just talking about it from a social science perspective. If you don't mind me asking, Rachel, how do you feel that's affected your child in, 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 in her intellectual and emotional growth. Yeah. My child is about to turn eight, um, this week and she astounds me with her communication skills, with her emotional intelligence and with her resourcefulness. She has access to so many different kinds of intelligences and skills. She receives love from so many different places And because she's an only child, the other children, you know, from my other partners, you know, are are kind of like these surrogate siblings, but she doesn't have to share her stuff with them. You know, her mother's time is not divided, you know, in this stressful way that can happen in a nuclear setup. Um, We need to remember that our natural human source is living in a tribal environment. We all used to have multiple parents around us. We all had big communities that were supporting one another. Mm -hmm. 
And that, that helps children, mm-hmm. like especially because they have access. Um, for I don't live with my partners. I choose not to. Uh, that's called solo polyamory, people who don't want to live with their partners and, yeah. and have multiple partners. Gotcha. Um, but in some spaces, we're talking about, you know, maybe four or five adults who are contributing financially into the management of a home. Right. And that is a lot of resources that are being shared among among them and all those children. So the stress is lower. I, the I, house is less tense. I appreciate you opening up about that. We're going to need to take our last break here, but let's take a let's take a quick caller question, which we will then contemplate over our break. Line four, you're on the air. Hello, Stan. <laughs> Boy, it's swinging tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Give it to us. How are you? No pun intended. Uh, you know, it all sounds cool and it sounds nice and so forth. Uh but, you know, there are three guys that should have been mentioned in this program tonight who really helped open the, the, what she's been doing. And that's, you may not agree, that's Hugh Hefner, Bob Guccione, and Larry Flint, whether you agree or not. Ooh, that's a whole different oh, kettle yeah, of fish. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. Give us, your question, give us your question or comment, then we're going to take do a break. You believe, yeah. Do you believe that through their publications over 30, 40 years, sexuality, which led this woman to find that, helped? Do what you're doing. It helped yeah. do that. Yeah, it you know, didn't, go ahead. There, there is a lot of association in, you know, I think there's a lot of mythology, I think, around sex positivity in general and, and, and consensual non-monogamy and that it's like somehow like more kinky and there's more sexual activity and so forth. And some of the research I did in the show didn't necessarily hold up on that, but it's, Dan, it's a great point. I bet you a lot of listeners are, are thinking about Kind of the sexual revolution in general. Is that how well, we, we one quick thing? I got to get in. One quick thing. Shoot, but we got to take a break. All right, here it is. What does you say? Your daughter? Does she see this type of thing? And what if she wants to approach other children? Uh, this could be a serious problem of child. Uh, okay, we'll situation. get. I think we'll it get has to that to question. Expressed. We will get to the question after okay, the break. Good Thank, thanks, Dan. We'll be right back. And you treated my woman. To a flake of your life And when she came back All right, looking at the board. Oh, boy, here we go. We're going to have a call after the break. DocuVax is also partially brought to you. Excuse me, Doc, look at me. I'm nervous about this caller. Uh, equal Footing is part to, partly brought to you by DocuVax. You've heard me talk about DocuVax before, so I'm not going to talk about it too much, but you got to get the app, D-O-C-U-V-A-X. You can get it on your iPhone or your Android phone. You can also go to DocuVax.com. That's D-O-C-U-V-A-X.com. It's a medical locker that you have on your smartphone or on your laptop, and it organizes all of your confusing medical information. All you need to do is snap a picture, download a file, and you have doctors and nurses online 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, who will go through, make sense of it, categorize it, tell you when you need your next preventative screening. you got to get your blood type information or which vaccines you're current on and which you're not. Give you a means to share elements of your medical file using a QR code-based system, but off of a secure HIPAA-compliant database so you don't have to worry about sharing extraneous information like your birth date or you know, your marital status or something else that's irrelevant to the person asking whether you're trying to get into a restaurant or a concert venue or whatever. So DocuVax covers 60, over 60 different important elements of your medical profile. Like I said, 
from vaccinations like COVID, flu, and tetanus to colorectal and breast cancer and other preventative screenings to blood types and allergies, even MRIs, x-rays, and other test results, serology results. Sign up. Go to DocuVax.com or easier, download the app on your smartphone, D-O-C-U-V-A-X, or if you want, call. And if you call and you mention that you heard about it on equal footing, you can get group discounts for your family or your small business if you want to offer this digital medical locker as a perk, like a gym membership, to your employees. Call 833-859-1933. That's 833-859-1933. And it's for as little as $6.99 per month. DocuVax subscribers can privately access all of the medical records and it's, uh, like I said, validated by doctors and nurses that are on staff uh, all the time. So go to DocuVax.com or call for a group discount, 833-859-1933. Take control of your medical file. Sign up. Call 833-859-1933 or go to DocuVax. I've been caught. This is what always happens. As we as we come into the last segment, we always get like a bunch the, the board lights up and we get a bunch of texts and people like need to kind of pent up and they get upset or whatever. I love Stan for I love Stan in general calling it always, you know, saying what other people are thinking, but we do have really limited time. So I wanna we're gonna do like rapid round. Uh so Rachel, uh quickly on Stan's point with respect to your daughter. Um do you, like sure. does does she see you dating other people? Do how 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 knowledgeable is she of your social life? Right. So I first want to mention that the three men that he had mentioned were exploitative and they yeah. were not yeah, we're gonna helpful get to our yeah, we're gonna get there. sexual expression. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but, you know, like I'm not having sex in front of my child. Right. <laughs> um, to to the dismay of many of the like naysayers, um, what she does see is a lot of affection and care, which I have with people who are not my partners as well. So she just sees a really lovely, joyous experience that her mother is engaging in and people who are engaging with her mother in that way. And it's literally just lovely and sweet. Uh, she knows that I'm non-monogamous, and it's up to her to decide if she wants to talk about it. Um, right. She yeah. doesn't currently. <laughs> right. I think you know there are lots of different difficult situations in homes that we have to choose when a child gets exposed to and how we talk to them about it. So, yeah, I don't even want to spend too much time on the reference to like Playboy and Hustler and stuff like that. I mean, I think there's a. I'll take that one on myself. I mean, just exploitation of 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 anybody and in this in in that type of um imagery and setting and and stylization of sexual life is ta- is something completely different than what we're talking about. We're actually talking arguably about a morally superior system frankly and I'm sorry to again tweak listeners are you saying you're monogamous and cheating or are you being open and loving with your partner about your needs and talking it through? Come on. I mean, let's be adults here. Um no offense, Dan. Uh Eric we're again, we're, we're in, in, in lightning round. There are a few questions that have come in and have basically said something similar, which is about the, effectively asking, do couples do this when the spark has died out? Is this something that couples are become, at what point do they get interested in it or something that actually you, you would recommend for some couples from the beginning of a relationship? I definitely I would not wait for the. Sorry, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. It's okay. 
I'm sorry. What? Yeah, I was asking you, Eric. I mean, either one take it, but it's just you know, what's what's your what's your view on that? Is it something that I, I never you, recommend? I never recommend any relationship structure to any client. That's for them to decide. I know that, and, and when we're, what we're talking about here, you, you brought it up earlier around this notion of deception. You know, I have a very simple way of thinking about this. If you're keeping secrets in your relationship that impact your partner's ability to make free choices, that's a secret. Right. And if you're having sex outside of a relationship and you've agreed to not have sex outside of a relationship, you're keeping a secret that impacts your partner, not just in terms of a breach of trust, but it impacts their capacity to make choices. If something is private, and I make this distinction all the time, when it's private, it's about me, and it doesn't have any impact on my, my partner. And so I make that distinction. The other thing that was brought up, this notion of exploitation, I'm so glad Rachel said that, because this is what happens when things like this come out. I remember, you know, at the, at a early on uh, during the sexual revolution, I'm old enough to remember some of these things, but the conflation of homosexuality with psychopathology mm. was a conflation, and it was based on this idea from therapists seeing homosexuals as patients and conflating other pathologies that they had with their homosexuality. Mm. And it wasn't until uh, uh, Hooker, who actually studied uh, neuroticism amongst uh, men, gay men and straight men, found that there was no difference. But again, even in the height of the AIDS crisis, the notion of monogamy was pushed as a way of trying to reduce the spread of AIDS. And to your point earlier, Shock and surprise, yeah, the largest effect. spread of HIV right. was in, quote-unquote, monogamous relationships. In Africa. So the question yeah, here, the question that yeah. you're asking that's really important is, and why this conflation is really important, is that as things come out that are new, people think of relationships and they conflate it with sexuality and they conflate it with uh, particular kinds of sexuality. And that's not what either, I know I'm not, and I know Rachel is not talking about that. You're talking specifically about are we ready to be more honest about our needs, wants, and desires? Are we ready to engage in real conversations about those needs, wants, and desires? Are we ready to actually work through uh, challenges that we may encounter with people that we want to have relationships with or want to have relationships with us? It yeah. makes this very, making this explicit makes this much more rich, actually, for most people who participate. And, and you this guys is not are- for me. It, it, you guys are doing about the, the, polyamory versus monogamy. I see monogamy as another relational structure in the continuum of relational structures. We're gonna we're gonna run out of time. I, I, bravo, Eric, because you've said that you, now. I totally get what you're talking about making the implicit explicit, talking about it, having the conversations, being real. I am gonna push our listeners to challenge. I'm sorry, Rifki from Borough Park. I did honestly want to take your call. Send me an email. Call next time. Tell me why I shouldn't have done this show. More, we have to be open about challenges. There's so many marriages where things are not honest and not open. We'll have to get back to this subject again. Eric Schneider, Rachel Klachevsky, thank you for talking about consensual non-monogamy. We'll catch you next week. Sometimes the woman in you is uneasy. I can see it in your eyes. Just like me, you need to know. Can you still fly? Can you still arouse the passions of another man? Much more